0: Hello, welcome to Leaving in Color, a podcast about uncovering your radiant self after losing your faith. I am your host, Christina Elmer. I'm so delighted you found us. Hello, hello. Oh my God. Um, I can't believe it. We're actually finally here. This is the first... Episode of Leaving in Color. Wow, this has been a, such a process <laughs> getting to this point. I am incredibly grateful for the support of so many people. My coach Natalie and my producer KO and of course friends and family. And yeah, it's just it's a little surreal surreal that we're actually here recording today. So when I had the idea for this podcast, God, it was about a year ago and I was working with a different coach at the time. And in the coaching container, we were envisioning our future selves. And what I had envisioned for myself was to be a host of a podcast. And at that time, I wasn't sure what type of podcast it would be, but I just knew that I wanted to be a storyteller of some kind. And the idea for Leaving in Color is to create a space where individuals who may not necessarily get the opportunity to tell their story for a multitude of reasons, that this space is the place where they can come share their experiences of leaving high-demand belief systems and that their stories matter. Um, Also being a person of color, being Japanese-American, I often feel like I don't fit in a lot of places. And I want to be able to create a community where anybody, regardless of their skin tone, that they can feel like, what they have to say, that their experiences matter, that they just matter, they themselves as a human being. So here we are, Leaving in Color, the podcast for uncovering your amazing self after leaving your faith or losing your faith. Today's episode is going to be a great one. Um, the guest that we have today is a very, I don't want to say old because we're really not that old, we're actually pretty fucking fabulous, <laughs> is my amazing, kind, wonderful, strong friend, Marcos. And he has so graciously decided to join us here today to share with us his story of finding the strength to uncover his truest self. It wasn't an easy path, but here he is and he has survived and he is here to share his amazing experience with us. It's a little wild because we're recording on a Sunday and For a lot of people in Christianity, and Mormonism in particular, Sunday is the the day of rest. It's the the Lord's Day. And it's for a lot of people that are out of Mormonism or whatever their journey may be, um, Sunday is considered a second Saturday. So it it feels very serendipitous to be recording on a Sunday. But I would love to now introduce to you, after that long spiel, (laughs) my... Lovely, amazing, talented, wonderful friend, Marcos. Um, It's wild that we're here um, 20 years later after meeting at the Lord's University, Brigham Young University. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, Marcos. I'm so glad you're here.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for the invite. And congratulations, by the way, very happy for you.
0: Yeah, it's been, I contacted Marcos, when was it? It was back in April when I got the idea to start the podcast. And it's been months of, I had to really muster up the courage (laughs) to get into the space where I could just really trust my ability to say that I belong, you know? Mm -hmm. And so thank you for being willing to do this journey with me. And to be the first guest, um, <laughs> <laughs> where do we begin? I yeah, Marcos and I have known each other for twenty years, as I said, and um, we met in college, and we'll we'll talk about a little bit about our time at Brigham Young University back in the late 90s. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the early two thousands. Uh, the early two thousands. Um
0: we're totally <laughs> aging
1: ourselves here. <laughs> at the, yeah, at the eve of the new millennium. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh my goodness. The thing is just like I think I honestly feel Marcos and I are here sitting on video and we have both definitely gotten better with age. We're both like fine wines. (laughs) We've definitely gotten better with age. Or fine cheese if you don't drink alcohol, but or whatever gets better with age. But definitely (laughs) and it has also to do probably with the fact that, you know, we also have great genetics. (laughs) So (laughs) we're both mixed. We're both mixed. I'm I'm half Japanese and Marcos is I'll let him tell his story. But um But yeah, Marcos, please tell us, who are you?
1: Let's see, that's a tough question. I am California local, so born and raised. I'm very proud to be from California. Feel very fortunate to be, be here. Um, my grandparents had migrated here um, almost a hundred years ago from Mexico. Um, so with that, there's a long, a now long family history Specifically in Southern California, and so I'm very happy to still reside in, this, in, this state, in the state and in the history that we have here as a family. Um, I'm very proud of my Mexican heritage. Um, my so on my mom's side, I am Mexican, and then on my dad's side, um, my dad is white. He has a long history in this in this country um, as well. Like I think like his ancestors might go back to like the Mayflower. Oh, cool. I don't really though connect with that side of my um of my heritage per se. Um I'm happy for my dad and, and his heritage and I see that as, as all you know very good for him, but it's not something that I fully connect to. Um and I think that works for me and I think that works for him. Um I know <laughs> yeah. um it, it's all very complicated when you're mixed, as, as I'm sure you know, yeah, um sure. it can be complicated. So it's one of those things where I'm like my dad is white, but I am not. Yeah. <laughs> right? So, yeah very interested and involved with being Latino, Chicano, Mexican American, person of color. Um, That's something that's really important to me. Um, I also identify as gay. um, And, you know, I think being from marginalized groups, and just depending on your experience, I think sometimes the more you have to battle things along your process and journey with those identities, it just makes you hold on to it more dearly. Yeah. Um, so I think uh, I became even more proud of my identities as I've ex- had different experiences within my life or have had to like defend myself and defend those identities and communities. Um, so it's something that's very proud to me. I know some people don't understand that, but, you know, like I say, if if you don't want people to be so proud of their identities, maybe you shouldn't treat them like shit. Uh, you, know yeah. you know what I mean? Because as <laughs> you treat them that way, they're going to start to be, you know, be more proud of it because they have no choice but to latch onto it once they realize that that's what you just need to do but i'm someone who i definitely value kindness i value empathy i value community i i just try to be a better person each day um and when i'm not i try the next day yeah that's kind of me in a nutshell um anything else you want to know with that or that (laughs) kind of (laughs) covers no that was
0: that was beautiful thank you
1: you're welcome,
0: I loved when you said that, because of the way that people have treated you or just people that treat people that are marginalized, yeah. that you know we need to latch onto right. that identity and it makes it stronger for us. and I think I've not actually thought about that in that way, and thank you for bringing that to light because it's actually something for me to think about now. like I identify as Japanese,
1: you know, mm-hmm. but I
0: feel like. I haven't really tapped into that a whole lot. I also Mm -hmm. being, you know, a cis Asian woman, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I feel like I haven't experienced a lot of marginalization or even racism or hatred because of who I am. I still have a lot of privilege. Mm -hmm. Um, And so thank you for sharing that with me and, you know, saying that that that's allowed you to. To come into who you are, and I, I think that's beautiful, and I'd love to explore that more as we get further into this podcast and have more of a conversation. Because I'm very, very curious about the journey of how you came into the beautiful human that you are today. Not that you weren't beautiful twenty years ago, but you know, just, <laughs> just seeing you evolve as your friend has been just beautiful to to watch.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: You're welcome. Um. So, obviously, you went to Brigham Young University. You grew up Mormon, right? Yes. Um, yeah. What was that experience like growing up in Southern California, where there's a predominantly huge Mormon LDS? Church of Jesus Christ of mm-hmm. Latter-day Saints. We need to call them by their proper name, right? They don't they uh-huh. don't like being called Mormons anymore. Um <laughs> members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That is a mouthful. It is. Um but what was that like growing up as a Chicano man in a predominantly white religion, you know, very North right. American white religion? Yeah, let's start with that. <sighs>
1: Very complicated. Very complicated. Um, you know, I like you said, I was born and raised in the church um, on my mom's side. So on my Mexican side, I'm actually fourth generation. Um, fourth generation was, you know, LDS um, Mormon. Oh yeah. wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So her her grandmother, so my great grandmother, had converted when um, some of her kids were very young. So when my grandmother was very young, in Mexico, my grandmother's yeah, in okay. Mexico. Yeah. So at this point, I believe it was still in central Mexico. Um, That's where my grandmother's from. And that's where they're just that's just where they originated. And my grandmother's father had had passed away um, when he was young, when she was very young. And so soon after that, I believe is when the missionaries came to my great grandmother's house, and she converted. You know, I I mean, I can get into that later. But the church has been very significant, very important for generations within my family. Yeah. And then my dad, who's actually a convert. So he converted in his twenties, I believe, his early twenties. And um, my mom and my dad—they actually met the day after he got baptized. Oh wow! Um, at church, okay. Yeah. Was it in? Yeah. Was it in so, a,
0: a young single adults ward or a family congregation? Or um,
1: good question. I believe it was still the family. Okay. ward. I believe it was the family ward. And uh, so yeah, they met the day after he got baptized, and then soon had their courtship and uh they both went on missions and basically let see what happens type thing and then they came back and then soon after got married and went from there so um and they're still very um you strong in the church very much lds and uh so i grew up in very what's the word i forget the word uh it's funny how it works when you're a little bit far further removed from religion yeah. guess some of the words and terms. Yeah, But they, they were very, it was a very faithful household. They definitely okay. ruled, um, raised us with the church's guidelines. However, they weren't overly zealous about some things, which was nice, um, but they were pretty, you know, by the book in most areas. So, you know, most of my ward um, and area, well, most of the ward specifically was white. Um, there were a few of us who were not, a few families that were not, but most were white. For the most part, I would say I had a good experience. Like people were very nice. Um, you know, with, within time, you know, I was like a teenager. I developed really strong bonds with some of the, the senior citizen uh, women in our ward. I, we loved hugging each other. and You know, most of them were white. Um, but there were some of like the, the older brown women too that we connected. Um, for the most part, it was good. However, there definitely were a lot of microaggressions mm. uh, that you just hear from the pulpit and you encounter. In your socializing with people, it's a lot of a lot of microaggressions and racism. Yeah. Like even when I went to a wedding um probably like eight years ago of a, a friend I grew up with in the church, and a very nice family um was there. And I was just surprised by some of the microaggressions that immediately came out while trying to give a compliment. It was a backhanded well, complimenting me, my family was insulting my, you know, ethnic community. And I was oh, like, Wow. Oh. Okay. Um, so definitely was a lot of that with my experience in the church. Um, and then just hearing, and it feels odd using this term now, but all the Lamanite talk that they would have, and how the fetishization and, and, you know, just all sorts of things that they do with brown people and say about brown people was really frustrating. Um, so it was definitely a mixed bag. I'm very thankful for my experience overall. I feel like it taught me about faith and prayer. It provided a community and, you know, with the fact that you learn so many little skills that you wouldn't have been exposed to otherwise, like as a yeah. kid, right? How to make photocopies. How to, <laughs> how, <laughs> how
0: I to mean, the church public. library was like anytime you got access to the church right. library was just like you felt like a freaking baller because it had everything in there it had the crayons it had all the artwork and the copy machine which was always broken it was always broken but it was just like when you got to use it it was just like you felt like so freaking cool
1: that's so true like i remember as a kid we would photocopy our face (laughs) Like, I never would have experienced this otherwise, right? You didn't get a chance to do it as a kid in private. Yeah. Um, oh so you goodness. learn a lot of little skills, yeah. you know, and so th- th- that was all rewarding. And I, I um, was very appreciative of it. And so it's it's weird when that becomes a place of solace and peace, and then it starts conflicting with you, and then it's no longer that, or it's like, or it could be both at the same time, Right. Yeah. And that's where it starts getting really complicated and really um unfortunate to work, I feel like a betrayal, so yeah, it was every witch experience I would say, yeah,
0: would you mind expounding a little bit more um for listeners that may not really know kind of the theology in Mormonism and regarding the Lamanite people,
1: yeah, um at least at the time when I um was involved. I'm sure. I'm assuming most of it has stayed the same. Um, essentially, it was believed and taught that Lamanites are essentially the ancestors of present day um, Native Americans um, or those with, you know, Native descent. Um, so it can include many, you know, people from Latin America. Um, some also extended it to like the Pacific Islanders. In my experience, uh, my family would have been more with the Native ancestry aspect. Um and my family is very much brown. Um, my Mexican family, so um definitely they were seen as like descendants of Lamanites. And um with that, um uh, essentially Lamanites, they descended from the the family, Lehi and his family who came from Jerusalem. They came to what is the Americas, um, essentially the promised land. Um they arrived, Laman and Lem- Lemuel, yes. Lamuel, I say it correctly enough. <laughs> they were um uh, essentially the The evil sons, the evil brothers. They were really vilified. (laughs) Yes, yes. And of course, um, their followers were then known as the Lamanites, were then, as they were were taught, were cursed with dark skin, or or cursed in general, but the mark of that was the brown skin. And so there's both this demonization, but then also like this fetishization that happens (laughs) um, with um, these groups. And so it's really... Interesting to see. And just, I know like many family members and I definitely were uh, uncomfortable mm-hmm. with some of these things that were said. And it wasn't until BYU, my Book of Mormon professor, who's a very nice man, um, he tried clarifying it as far as like, no, the, the brown skin, the dark skin is not the curse. Yeah. That's the mark. And then the curse is something else. Mm-hmm. I mean, it definitely is playing semantics. Um, yeah. But definitely, at the time, it felt a little better. Like, thank you for saying this in a predominantly white classroom. Yeah. Um, because people are going around thinking that we're cursed. Yeah. And
0: sure.
1: you know, many Christian denominations have that mentality about people of color. Yeah. That you know, white is virtuous, white is pure, and we just see that throughout—not just religion, but like literature yeah, and just sure. society. Right, going back, the fair maiden and all those yeah, types of things. Dress always dressed in virginal white. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. So it's overlapped so much with like race, ethnicity, and gender when it comes down to that. And so all that was very complicated. You know, being a kid, some of it was like a sense of pride. Like, you know, that's right. Like, you know, this, this is where we're from. This is our land. Christ came to visit us as well. And we matter too. But now as an adult removed from that ideology, I'm like, I do not like how they still like take those tours I'm like, no, 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 no. From my perspective, that's not your ancestors' stories. Mm-hmm. Those are indigenous people and yes. indigenous descended people's history and families and stories and beliefs. So I don't like how they Columbus that still. <laughs> um, so that really bothers me. Um, and it's also led to a lot of other, it's contributed to a lot of other groups out there um, that do essentially pirate indigenous history and culture and um, so it's very problematic in that regard. So it's all very conflicted, right? On yeah. one hand, at one point, it was like, yay. And then I was like, nay. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> um, so it's very complicated. But that, that was my overall experience with that. Um, but I do definitely think it's problematic.
0: Yeah, for sure. It definitely is. I, yeah, I can definitely relate to that. And it's different because being of Japanese descent, like there's not, you know, I didn't necessarily identify with the Lamanites per se, mm-hmm. but I did to an extent, like, especially when I had children and, you know, we'd be reading from the Book of Mormon and they would talk about people because they were wicked. They were cursed with darker skin. And
1: mm-hmm.
0: my ex-husband is of German descent, so he's very fair skinned. And my my children have some color. <laughs>
1: Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's
0: it was there's the there's a term in the Book of Mormon that talks about white and delightsome.
1: Oh, yes.
0: And even like as a child, just reading that because, you know, I'm naturally tan like um, a lot of yeah. there's different variations of skin tone within, you know, people colors, you know, even within Japanese. right? And so um, I just remember reading that and just being like, what the hell? What the hell does white and del- so mean you know it feels very and you know there's mormon apologists that sit there and they you know as your book of mormon professor at byu tried to recognize that there was some issue with it and tried to maybe add in a little bit of there was a little bit more nuanced than you Mm -hmm. know it was intended but you know i think he he tried to make it fit into something maybe what he was believing for himself and maybe that wasn't what necessarily what joseph smith intended but (laughs) i do appreciate that he he did do that because he was acknowledging that there was some problematic themes within what he was teaching um and i i appreciate that but yeah some of the just looking back and You know, because my 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 kids are still very active in the church because my ex-husband is. And so I still have a connection to it in a sense. Um, But it's just very interesting kind of remembering those things that we read as kids and just, you know, I I don't know if your experience was like this, but I I didn't really read the Book of Mormon. Like it was just kind of like <laughs> I read it once to get done with my young women yeah. certification, like the young women's yeah. whatever the thing was, because it was like, you know, looking for external validation. Because, you know, my, I came from right. a family that wasn't necessarily fitting into the normal Mormon confines of what a perfect family was. Um, and so I felt like I had to do it. And so I read the Book of Mormon just once just to get the you know beautiful medallion with the salt lake temple and engraved on it which they don't do that anymore so it feels less rewarding in young women oh, really? they just did like little bookmarks with ribbons and like
1: oh
0: know, I used to
1: like their swag. I in their know we got some <laughs> sweet
0: swag in you young need women. Something to show for I know, them. especially with like the, especially with the Boy Scouts getting as much swag as they did. It was always nice as a young woman to get the golden medallion when you finished in Beehives and my Maids and then Laurels and then when you finished right. all of it. So I always loved See, it. I
1: wanted. I would have preferred a medallion over a tie tack to be <laughs> honest. <I'm> like, <laughs> right? Can, can you make this a medallion? Yes. Not a I know. <laughs> but, well, I'll settle for it. Yeah, fine. for I sure. It on Sunday, but yeah. <laughs> but I want to go back to what you said yeah. about like that scripture. Um, I have a book right here. I'm actually there's a Mex- a Mormon. I forgot what it's called, but like Mormon Mexican history museum. It's okay. just a very small like little museum and in Provo. In Provo, okay. And about ten years ago, um, I went. I'm like, okay, I want to see. Because, you know, my my grandmother, I as I mentioned, she was from central Mexico, but they had migrated to northern Mexico when she was younger as well. And after they converted and stuff and were baptized. So they were actually living in the Mormon colonies okay. um, in northern Mexico. Okay. So the colonias. Um, you wanted to see because <laughs> say it again. The
0: colonias. <laughs>
1: Yes, exactly, exactly. Look at you, El Paso. Yeah, you know, you know, <laughs> you know all about it. <laughs> um, and actually, El Paso is where my grandparents um, entered. The oh, United that's States. really so, cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so we figured there would be some family history at the mus- museum, really so cool. we went. because yeah. part of like we don't, you know, just to learn more. And so we went, and I was so bothered because the book that they sell there. It has that scripture on the front cover, and essentially, you look at like the Journal of Discourses, prophets, you know, passages talking about, like especially about Mexican people. They would talk, and you know, native, native descended or native people in general, they would talk about and bring up, like, oh, pretty much after being converted and following the church, they became whiter, they became lighter. Can you believe it? This shows how great (sighs) the church's teachings are, and I'm like, it's all documented. So yeah. this book has it on the cover, and it has a, a picture of a bunch of brown people, and then it has that on top. So I got it just for that reason, because I wanted to have proof of it. And I wanted, I was tempted to email them. I, I'm like, I need to calm down before doing so. <laughs> but, I, but I didn't. It's still not too late. Yeah. But um, it's been sitting, you know, on my bookshelf for about a decade. Wow. And I'm so annoyed still about it.
0: That's wild. Thank you for sharing that. Um, when you were talking and we were sharing about, you know, when you are talking, explaining to our listeners about um, Laman and Lemuel, it was interesting when I was kind of exploring different versions of Mormonism while in Mormonism, coming into my baby feminist stage in Mormonism, um, but also realizing, you know, being... I, what do we call Asian? Are we do are Asians? Are we considered brown? Are we considered, you know, I just, I just go with persons of color. Cause that's what feels most safe to me. Like, how do, how do I fit into the grand scheme of the ideology and the belief system of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? And what do I want my children to know? Because they're, they're like a weird percentage. Cause I'm three quarters Japanese. And mm-hmm. so they're like, 38% Japanese. But how do I want my kids to feel in this belief system mm-hmm. that's very, very, very whitewashed and feels very col— you know, has a real colonial colonization feel to it. Um, mm-hmm. And it was interesting as I was kind of looking at um, Mormon literature written by, you know, Mormon authors, people that are still believers within Mormonism, but had a little bit more of a nuanced take to Mormonism um, oh, really? one book that I found and um, she's a fiction writer you may have to put it in the show notes I can't remember her name um, but I loved the books that she wrote and there was one that she wrote and I I'm going to tear up thinking about it because it just really spoke to me was called um, The Book of Layman I don't know if you you ever read it mm-hmm. um, you may not have because I, I think I read it in like 2017 um, okay but um, it's about layman's take on the book of Nephi. Oh. And it was, it still may be a very interesting read now for yeah, you. I, I'm curious as to where you are now within within Mormonism. Um, but when I read it, I felt such a connection to it because it really came from a place of like struggle and, you know, just... Because growing up, we had really seen it as they were very vilified, like they were wicked and they were, you know, rebellious and they fought against their father Lehi and they, you know, tied up their righteous brother. And But we never got the perspective of Laman and Lemuel. Like, what were they going through? What was their experience? And as I've matured as a human being, I really wanted to know different perspectives in the Bible or in the Book of Mormon, like what are women's take on, you -hmm. know, what happened when Jesus was on earth or why aren't there more stories within the Bible or Book of Mormon where women are actually named, you know, and I would ask friends about it or my spouse at the time. And the answer that I consistently got was, Oh, there's stories. You just have to look for it. And I would look and I wouldn't find anything. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I really appreciated towards the end of my journey in Mormonism was there was a lot more coming out about women oh. in in the scriptures, you know, women in the Bible. There's volumes of, of text of um, people taking dedicated time to research women in the Bible and the Old and New Testaments. And I don't know if there was one that ever came out about the Book of Mormon, but back to reading the Book of Layman, it just like, the story was granted. It was fictionalized, and it was this woman's, this the author's take of how she felt. Layman was experiencing, you know, coming to the Americas, and you know how he felt after he tied Nephi up on the ship, and how he felt when you know he was forced to go and get the scriptures, you know, the brass plates from Layman and or Laban, oh, and it geez. just was such a beautiful read i almost want to go back and read it because um it's bringing up a lot of emotion for me i remember reading it and thinking about it when we were on family vacation in southern utah and i just kept feeling so connected to that story and even now Mm -hmm. leaving having left mormonism three years ago i wish that there were more things like that available whether Mm -hmm. especially for people that decide to stay in Mormonism, you know, to have um, stories written for them about that they can identify with more Mm -hmm. and not, you know, read the Book of Mormon and feel detached from it, but feel like they have to believe it because they're told that they have to believe it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. It's also beautiful to see the journey that Mormonism has taken for a lot of people like there's a lot of people that are still in that are really working to make Mormonism a place where people can stay. Right. You know, right. if they if they choose to stay and I I really appreciate those those individuals who are doing that work because right. there is something to be said about having a belief system and having a community right. and right. but it's hard when you can't find yourself in mm-hmm. a lot of of you know the the images the the pictures that are used in mormonism you know you can't pioneer stories the pioneer Mm. stories which you know then they say you know you can you're a pioneer in your own right but it's like i don't identify with those people crossing the plains and suffering and yes like i have ancestors on my dad's side that Probably have crossed the plains. I actually have not done a lot of family history. That was one thing I didn't really love
1: was (laughs) the family
0: history aspect um, of the church. But you know, I did have family members that did cross the plains, as I'm sure if you'd anyone does any research into their family history. But it, yeah, I it's not something that a lot of people of color, you know, brown people can really identify with. Which we do have our own versions of our our own people coming into this country and it's not necessarily that, but it is, it does resonate with us. And I wish that we had more of that in, Mm -hmm. in the form of religion. If, if that calls to people It's just interesting that growing up in, even in my congregation in El Paso, Texas, you know, which is on the border, there was a good mix of, you know, we had black people, we had brown people, we had white people. I, but I was the only Asian
1: mm-hmm.
0: in my congregation. And I don't think I really came into my Asianness until I got to BYU. And mm-hmm. I would, would really love to talk about our, our time at BYU. Um, but yeah, we may have to come back to this. It's not, it's not feeling easeful, but um, yeah, let's talk about BYU. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> How did you end up there? Like, is it, Because we know that BYU, for listeners out there, BYU is a church-owned, supported university. And so the tuition is subsidized by the monies that church members give in their tithe offerings. And so it makes it very economical for, you know, Mormon kids to go to Brigham Young University because tuition is subsidized and it's significantly less expensive than going even sometimes to a state institution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um so how did you end up at Brigham Young University Provo, because they do have different campuses. Right. They also have the Hawaii one, which right. I heard is much more difficult to get into, but
1: Okay, I didn't know how, that.
0: How Provo? Yeah.
1: So I always wanted to go ever since okay. I was a kid. Um I went through a I period. Love that. Of-
0: <laughs> I love that for you. I did just see you with like I was quite like the
1: little Mormon boy with
0: like a little Love that.
1: cougar hat. Oh my I was so God, sad that's when, cute. <laughs> I was so sad when it flew off and I lost it when we were on a family <sighs> trip in Mexico, in, oh. in Ensenada. I was like, oh, the wind took it away. I was so sad. But <laughs> 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 So I always wanted to go there. My eldest brother went there.
0: Okay. So it was
1: something that always kind of had to, you know, to model after. Um, I went through a period as a kid wanting to go to BYU-Hawaii. Like, oh, that just okay. sounds so cool. Being in Hawaii on a tropical island. Yes. Um, that dream was just very short-lived. But either way, uh, I wanted to go to a BYU campus. And so Provo was what I had in mind. And I went to SOAR, um, which was their um, Summer of Academic Refinement, which was for um, students of color um, okay. and or, I think it's since it's expanded a little bit, but still students okay. of color and lower income backgrounds. First generation college students, like a combination, but all of us were students of color. And um, it's before your senior year of high school. So I okay. went there and essentially they help prep you for college, help prep you for admissions to BYU, prep you for the ACT. And you actually know, take the ACT there as well, which is a standardized test for those who aren't familiar with the ACT versus the SAT. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah. so that was, that was where I wanted to go. And then when I went to SOAR, that's where I got to meet the people from multicultural office and the recruiters, really bonded with some of them, made some great connections and um, relationships with some of the staff and whether it be our counselors or um, recruiters and different office personnel, uh, some of which I'm still, you know, in communication with on social media. I and like that. Um, so it was great. I, the recruiter who I loved so much, um, she, was, she really walked me through the process of admissions, she actually personally told me that I was accepted to BYU over the phone. That's um, so cool. Because it was like a journey of like, having to submit more documents and have to send this and send that. I was um, a first-generation college student, grew up low-income. Um, while my parents, they had some experience um, in college, at a community college. Um, you know, life happens as an adult. Yeah. And so pretty much just working, marriage, kids, um, that that took over um so even though they didn't have the opportunity of college education they definitely encouraged it um so BYU felt in reach because of you know it was a Mormon-owned church we constantly would hear about it my brother went there a lot of cousins went there and so it's just where I wanted to be so I was very thankful that I was accepted um it was through the multicultural office so I definitely had a lot of support through them yeah um I was very fortunate to be granted a scholarship to them as well. And this is where I wanted to be. So I was super ecstatic. Overall, I loved the experience uh, because where I wanted to be. Being a freshman, always an adjustment. A first year, you know, being out of state. It's always going to be an adjustment period. And I was fortunate to have, you know, some cousins at the school, Mm -hmm. but other cousins in the area. Just extended family in the area in general. I was very lucky to have that as well as friends, as people from SOAR, people from childhood. So it was very, I was, was fortunate to not, I knew people already, so that helped. Yeah. But being at a PWI, uh, so primarily a white institution, is very interesting. <laughs> um, very, and BYU does love their acronyms as well. As, yes. As does as, as education in general, but BYU yes. loves their acronyms. Yes, um, they do. <laughs> it um, was a big adjustment for me. Um, you know, I grew up, in Southern California, where it's very diverse, I was used to have being around all people of color, just a very diverse group of people at all most of the time, and being where you're by far the minority was really an adjustment for me. And thank goodness for the multicultural office um, and all their activities and programs I was part of, and meeting you and your group of friends and um, other friendships that I you know, had there was very helpful to make that world much smaller. And yeah. where most of my close friends there were people of color
0: yeah. um, with
1: the exception of, you know, a few choking white people, um, which, I, <laughs> which I, which I built his the opposite, right? Where I built good relationships with or still in touch yeah. with right? some of our yeah. mutual friends as well. So, yeah. so I am appreciative of all that. It took a turn though, because it was around this time when I was having to figure myself out and mm-hmm. my sexual identity So it was a really difficult time. It was a mixed bag because it was both so much fun and so exhilarating, and I loved the knowledge, I loved the experience, you know, with some struggles there too, though, because I was a new new college student. Um, But then being away and trying to figure it out because, you know, I was 18, and, you know, at the time, 19 was the missionary age. Mm -hmm. And what I didn't want to do, and this is just for me only, what I didn't want to do was... Um, go on a mission and figure it out there. I wanted to have it figured out before I went, before I did the whole temple thing. I wanted to be clear about who am I? Where do I stand with this about okay. my sexual identity? So that's why I, I put that on myself. Looking back, mm-hmm. I was very young. I, could, I had a lot more time to figure it out if I wanted but I didn't want to do that because of my belief in the church.
0: Yeah, for I, and sure. I knew
1: that their stance on it, so I didn't want to necessarily. I had to be true to myself, but without what I felt was disrespecting their teachings mm. at the same time, um, which was a really hard balance. Yeah. So that's why at eighteen, essentially, I kind of put that on myself while BYU student um, to start exploring. Mm-hmm. And so with that, that doesn't really, you know, coincide being a BYU student and exploring your sexuality. Um, but I felt like I owed it to myself to do that. Yeah. Um, it was it was a struggle though, because there's so much Mormon guilt um that was attached. So it was yeah. really hard. Like I definitely looking back on it, I definitely think I had periods of of some depression there after I would explore. Um, there definitely was a lot of, you know, self isolation. There was um it was hard looking back on it and but i will still try to figure out what's next right because yeah. after freshman year that's time to go on a mission yeah so i had my year of trying to figure it out and exploring i didn't attach an identity to it i just attached actions um okay. i didn't attach identity to the actions. i just saw them as actions yeah and at the end uh it would just kind of coincides with mormonism too your right? yeah There's, Homosexual quote homosexual tendencies and same-sex attraction oh, versus hate your actual words. identity. Me oh. too. Me too. So gross. They're so frustrating. So I spoke with my bishop at BYU. Um, I stayed for the first summer term. Um, I think you may have been there too. I was there with yeah. you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I was suffering the silence for the most part oh, um, with ghost. all this. And I eventually did confide in one friend who was going through something similar. So thankfully we had each other at that time, Yeah. Um, but all in all, we were also handling it differently. And so it was, it was just a very hard time for both of us. And so I spoke to the Bishop and it actually went pretty well, I would say as well as it could have gone. Okay. But because of the timing of it, you know, I'm about to go home for the school year now from the school year. And so I didn't now, because I had to work through it, right? Like, mm-hmm. through the repentance process, I would now have to tell my home bishop as well. Oh, yikes. So I essentially oh. had to tell two bishops.
0: Mm. And looking
1: back on it, I mean, at that time, it's just the norm, right? Yeah. But looking back on it, it's so... um Not only is it so vulnerable, but it's violating. You are literally oh. telling a middle-aged man or older man what you have done giving details it feels odd and, and you so can feel fucking no- invasive yes yes and so long story short essentially i would have had to have gone on a mission to clear everything up yeah essentially to be able to go back to byu to you know continue byu with my scholarship you know and then kind of go along my merry way so both yeah. bishops all in all were willing because they saw that I did feel very guilty. I did want to go on a mission. I came from a family who's very missionary-minded. Yeah. And so I was starting the process. Of course, the bishop at home was in- encouraging that I date girls um, as well. And I'm like, oh, I don't really want to. Um, so but he was that. trying to be understanding. He did have a yeah. scientific approach to some of his sayings, which is oh, the first time good. I had heard some of that. Yeah um so okay cool so he was I think he did try I think both bishops did try um but all in all once I saw like I was figuring out this is really just who I am I stopped responding to correspondence Mm. and then it became a big deal so essentially long story short I was on run on the run and what I felt like on the run for a long time because I was trying to avoid you were a certain fugitive. things, I was a fugitive. I was a fugitive, the- <laughs> was a fugitive. <laughs> and all while virtually yeah. alone. Um, yeah. Thankfully, at that time, as I did, ha- I was in a long-term relationship that has started, and thankfully for him and his support, I started e- expressing bits and pieces to like a close friend or to my close cousin, but without getting giving details. Um, yeah. The only one at the time that knew all the specifics were. Um, my then boyfriend. And I think actually in my other close friend at the time who was also going through something similar. So those were the only two. So I felt it was very scary, you know, living at home yeah. and just trying to start your life. And I was working full time now at this time, not going to school because I decided, still not telling people that I decided not to yeah. go on a mission yet. and just trying to prolong all these conversations, ex- yeah. put off all these conversations as long as I yeah. could. I was just trying to do my thing. Um, so It's interesting because the church, my sexuality, and my personal relationships, my familiar relationships, so professional education, it's all very intertwined for a long time. And it was inevitable. So it was really complicated. So the life definitely took a turn that I was not, I never would have expected, to be honest. I had everything mapped out. You know, when you're Mormon, you kind of do yeah and when certain things are expected of you whether it be from the church sure. or from school or whatever or just personally you have it all mapped out and I did yeah and when none of that happens or in that order or to those type that gender of people it's really it's really it throws you off and yeah. it took a long time for me to figure it out because I wasn't hiding and having to protect myself and survive while still trying to move ahead um was a lot it was a lot.
0: Yeah. Wow. Oh, my heart, Marcos. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. It feels like I can't imagine having to navigate all of that alone. You know, I know that you had a couple of people, but just I, and maybe my, I'm assuming, but I, I know you to be a very social and loving person. You love being around people. So I can imagine that that was just so... Probably heartbreaking and terrifying, and just potentially made it much more difficult to even try to work through some of those things because you were so extremely isolated and you couldn't reach out when you needed people.
1: And you're, you're exactly right. It it through my young adulthood and actually adulthood overall, it, I had to change. I kept my circle very small.
0: Yeah, um,
1: I grew up in a family that's also very private as well, yeah. so I was kind of already used to you know. Right. Being selective what I would share, but that was kind of n- normal for me. But to have to be so selective about who I could let yeah. into my life. I may I delayed on getting on social media. I yeah. dreaded bumping into people because I didn't know what wasn't be said or what wasn't be asked or what was heard. Yeah. And so it it made it very, very hard to create new relationships as an adult, like yeah. friendships as an adult. So thankfully I was able to take in the circle of my then um, my then boyfriend And you know We had a very long term relationship We're still close friends I'm still good friends with his family So thank goodness yeah. For all their support That I've had for a very long time Yeah um, And then fast forward now You know Being married to a wonderful man And having his circle And so Really it, It's through them And their circles is Were my, my closest people in my life While also being selective Who I would let in Through work Through school Yeah um, Along the way So it definitely did change Like any any idea of like developing new friendships and socializing that I would have had during my time at BYU, it had to shift. And so it was hard and then you kind of get used to it and that becomes your new norm. Um, and when people do kind of like do you dirty along the way about your sexual identity, um, and there's betrayal there that you just start to trust less people and you start to just once again, keep your circle even smaller. And so it makes it hard. It does. Um, But you're right. And I I appreciate you seeing that and understanding that because I don't think a lot of people would. People would, at the time in my early 20s, I would hear comments. Like, they sensed the shift in me. Yeah. But I think it's funny because at that time or growing up, there there were times where I was a little bit different than my usual self. And no one thought to ask why. And that's what kind of hurts, looking back on it. That's something that recently hit me. It's like, okay, I remember going through a really angsty period in middle school. And I remember people telling me, You're being different. What's going on with you? Mm. And the same thing happened when I was trying to hide my relationship and hide the yeah. prevent conversations about mission and BYU in my early 20s. And I was having to be very quiet and not talk about my life, ask about their life. And there were people that that kind of called me out on being different um, or thought something was going on. And so I think some people may have tried, but did anyone stop to think, was I okay? You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's what kind of hurts looking back on it. Like, did anyone stop to think of I was okay? Because I was on yeah. autopilot. I was in survival mode. And yeah. facing it from a lot of people, it doesn't help. And it makes it hurtful. Like as a kid growing up, being perceived as gay was hard. Mm, yeah. Very, very hard. And, and it literally started from before kindergarten, but at least kindergarten, all the way up through it, it never ended, and yeah. that was hard. Your whole educational experience, um, having to deal with questions and assumptions and and negative comments being made to you, and no one did anyone ever stop to think, "It was I okay?" Because I was sure trying to put on a happy face. Yeah. But at home, it was a diff- I was hard. I was struggling, and so same yeah. thing as an adult. So I'm, I thank you for kind of seeing that um, because it was just definitely far from easy.
0: Yeah, I can imagine in regards to your sexuality, was it something that you noticed like you knew about yourself since the time that you were little and it just, you know, because of Mormonism, it was something that, you know, just like we, we don't acknowledge it. It's not, we're not labeling it. We're not putting a face to it because I can't. And then when you got to college, then it was like, okay, well, we're already on this journey of like, we're away from home. We're experiencing new things and people now, it's okay. Um,
1: Great question. It's so complicated. It's one of those things where I, very young, I would say probably around four, is when I know that I knew there was something different. Yeah. You know, I, you don't, I, at least in my experience and many others, you know, in our age groups' experience that I've heard, you don't necessarily attach an identity to it, you don't attach a word to it, yeah. but you know, it's just something's different about you. Yeah. And, you know, I did notice men, you know, Men did catch my attention at times. And so I didn't know that starting pretty young. I didn't do anything with it Mm -hmm. until some online communications, like later in high school, but still very rare and still like trying to tune it out. And then it wasn't until probably after graduation of high school when I was more exploring more things online yeah um and then going through early college years um is when i started college year i guess is first freshman year is when i started yeah. doing more of that um because i wanted i i still was unsure because looking back on it i think i was emotionally attracted to girls okay um yeah. so i definitely i had the emotional because i had a lot of crushes and this is and that and i you know i thought girls were pretty and I, you know, did some experimentation with girls, you know, first base type stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but that's kind of where it stopped. Yeah. Um, there wasn't anything strongly physical there. Minus, oh, they're a pretty girl. You know, I'm, I'm supposed to marry a girl one day, so I'll get married to a girl, you know, who's in this. We're gonna have a lot of kids. We're gonna have a big wedding. Um, <laughs> of course, I'll be the one to plan the wedding, right? Yes. <laughs> Let me, I'm gonna pick out your dress. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um... So was all that type of things, there was always a conflict. Everything was conflicting, right? This dichotomy of this, you know, this versus that. So it was complicated. I did start having feelings of very young. Um, but I was just trying to be who I was um throughout my life. And it just when you see that who you are is being ridiculed, yeah. Then that's hard. And that's when you start thinking about it more. And I remember starting in early high school, maybe end of middle school. But starting early high school, I was literally praying to be less feminine, to be perceived as more as less feminine. I would literally pray. And <sighs> I actually went to high school. My first semester of high school was actually in Utah because um, my closest cousins had moved. And okay. we're like, oh, let's start. Let's go to high school together. And there was some talk at the time of maybe my family moving to Utah eventually. Okay. As in many Mormon families. Yes, Um, for sure. And that didn't happen. But I started my first semester um, in Utah. And a lot of the reason that I never shared with anyone was a lot of them wanted a fresh start.
0: Yeah. And
1: I was basically trying to escape the comments, are you gay? Or you are gay. Or And also there's nothing wrong with being gay. But at the time, it was definitely used as an insult. It wasn't a compliment. Oh, for sure. And, um, I wanted a fresh start and I figured if I move and start fresh, maybe I'll have that. And actually I did at first. It was good. Life was good. I was doing really well in school. I was being more disciplined because my cousin I was living with was very disciplined. So I kind of like followed his example with that. Um, you know, there was the whole girl thing going on. There was some attention, making friends. This is nice. And then boom, the end of that year, it started happening there too. Okay. And because one of my closest friends I made there who was the same, we were in the same boat. We were both perceived as gay because that's mm. who you're going to bond with or people that yeah. are very similar to you and similar interests. Yeah. We both had our love of divas and <laughs> so we bonded and it started happening there. And I was like, no, like, I obviously can't hide from this. I can't run from it.
0: Yeah, I should
1: actually say I was there for the first semester. So that towards the end of that first semester it happened. And then I ended up moving back home with my parents and started back at my home school where I would have gone. And it was actually worse there than ever. Which was the irony. Is yeah. I left to try to escape it. And then when I came back, now in high school, it became very opposed to just like individual comments. It became like yeah. systematic or systemic hearsay per se. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, where there were like legit rumors now going around uh-huh. of things I didn't do. okay. And it's like, what is this? So it felt very strange to me. Yeah. Um, So it was really hard. That time period was very hard. But the irony is through church, through trying to just work, like, you know, in the 90s, um, you know, mid to late 90s when we were at that time, um, you know, kind of learning more about ourselves. Self-help was a big genre of reading. Oh, yeah, for sure. All the chicken soup books. I was diving into those chicken soup books. I was diving into seminary. I was going to all the youth activities. I um, eventually started working and, you know, extracurriculars, um, you know, that really helped me come into my own, come out of my shell, feel more confident. And when I was feeling more confident, I was able to tune out all the BS. Mm, It still happened, but I felt more comfortable with trying to tune it out um, and throughout the end of high school. Um, So that was helpful. And same thing there was very much um, this duality of I felt very isolated. I felt almost like I had no friends. I was tired of feeling a certain way. But then on the flip side, I did have friends. I did have this. I did have that. But it was always like a internal struggle. Um, yeah. And I was, I, you know, that struggle became exhausting. It yeah, because you weren't able
0: to show your authentic self to people because the fear of, you know, them finding out this big part of yourself which you know if we can't authentically show who we are that you know there was probably multiple layers for you and tell me where if i'm wrong but navigating as a chicano man in mormonism where it's completely whitewashed and now you have this other layer of your identity that's complicating things and it's just like i can't where do i fit in who can i trust you know and it's just a so difficult and understandably why you just kind of just went inward. Yes. Yes. Especially in when you're talking about that stage in your twenties when you were navigating a relationship with a man, but also having to keep a lot of these things secret and just kind of running from if we want to call it this, the retaliation from the church, right. you right. know. And we can we can get into that. But it just trying to navigate all of that and also 20s is a time where you're trying to figure out still who you are and you know you're wanting to share this part of yourself but you can't and that's that's a heavy heavy load man
1: it it honestly was and it's one of the things i didn't even realize how heavy it was until probably my early to mid 30s yeah um because i was literally in survival mode for a long time and it wasn't until afterwards and there took a little few breakdowns <laughs> and, Yeah, because when you just have no no choice but to survive. And then when you kind of like can breathe, I then kind of had a little mini breakdown and
0: yeah.
1: um, was like, damn, like <laughs> I was really young going through a lot of shit and yeah. I didn't give myself enough credit for that. And it wasn't until I started telling my story more to a few people that I kind of saw their reactions. I was like, Oh, I guess I was a lot stronger than I realized, or that did yeah. take strength. To me, I, I always kind of tried to be true to myself, whatever that meant. I think yeah. that's just something that maybe is through all my struggles as, in childhood without realizing it. I just I had to develop strength and I had to be true to yeah. who I was. And mixed with how I was raised about always trying to do your best and be proud of who you are. And so maybe those things were just kind of, you know, entrenched, but... It took a lot of strength that I didn't give myself credit for. And it was hard. I was essentially a kid, a very new, new adult having to battle institutions. Um,
0: (laughs) Yeah. Like legitimate institutions. Yeah. 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 Put on us by society, put on us by religion.
1: Yeah, And those are,
0: they're all consuming because they're everywhere. You can't escape that, you know?
1: Exactly. And then having these adult adults seeking you out to check in on you and... Come to your work and oh, try. God. Yeah. Yeah. That one I can
0: imagine that must have been that, absolutely terrifying.
1: Yes. It was so terrifying. Like and looking back on it now as an adult who works with young people, um I get a sliver of it of like you're just trying to find them where they're at, see how they're doing, connect yeah, with them.
0: Cause you legitimately care about yes. these people's individuals, but what is the underlying yes. purpose?
1: Exactly. It was scary. Also I'm at work. And then all the bishop's there because I wasn't responding to messages yeah. that were being left for me at home. Um, eventually when I would occasionally go to church for um, like family things, like yeah. farewells, homecomings type thing, you know, the state president would then try to connect with me if he saw me. Yeah, And that felt weird. But all that stopped once I was no longer eligible to go on a mission age wise,
0: oh, I, yeah. I, I saw the of connection. Course. So I,
1: Yes, so I think they were trying to, in one hand, still work with me to see if we can get him, I'll quote, on the right path, get him on a mission. Yeah. And then the other hand is, what else can we maybe have a meeting with him about? So yeah. I just, my go-to at that point was just avoidance. I'm like, I yeah. have to survive. I'm not dealing with this. Please stop, you know, in my head, please stop bothering me. Yeah. So once again, thank goodness for the support I did have. Um, because I don't know if I would have survived, to be honest. Um, it's really nuts looking back on
0: it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's so interesting to me, the tactics and the the methods that they use, like what, what, what age were you when the, the call stops? I, I'm assuming like most people are considered ineligible to serve a mission at about what twenty-five or twenty six?
1: Yeah, I think at that time it was twenty six. So once I turned twenty seven, I
0: okay, stopped hearing from just, them. Yeah.
1: And I kind of noticed that a few years after it clicked, I'm like, oh wait. Yeah. I think that's why it stopped.
0: It feels so gross to me that like their only reason for, you know, granted We're not saying that this is generalized across the board for churches, people for that are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. A lot of people really legitimately do care about people, of course, yeah. But just the methods that they went about to keep you in a certain space, in a certain box, and to just like keep tabs on you in a really invasive way, like you know, instead of just respecting that if you wanted to come back you would have come Mm -hmm. back and like Mm -hmm. we were taught growing up like yes the power of the atonement is huge right Mm -hmm. like if we truly believe in christ as our savior he will fix everything right no Mm -hmm. matter where we end up like if we end up committing in your book probably you know as they're looking at the ultimate sin of entering into a Mm -hmm. homosexual relationship right Mm -hmm. if they truly believe what they were teaching they should have just let you come back mm-hmm. and say, you know, I'm ready to do this instead of just like running after you in a way that just felt terrifying, right? You know, it right. was like they exactly. weren't using. You know, I like to think of it as like, what would Jesus do? We set those right. bracelets going up, mm-hmm. like, what would Jesus do? And that doesn't feel like something that Jesus would. So it's just it's very curious to me the tactics that they take to like keep people in and using like such a fear model right instead of just like loving people and trusting that the space that they're in that they'll come back if they choose to come back instead of just coming at it from the space of fear and we know that as humans like if we approach anything with fear that the outcome is going to be completely different and it's true we can't keep people in that space when we're coming from the space of fear
1: right
0: so it's just very interesting It's yeah, it's just very Mormonism is just very interesting. I feel like we could spend hours talking about it, but it's just like when it comes to things of like disfellowshipment or excommunication, Mm -hmm. there is a lot of stigma behind it, especially when you have family members that are still active in the church, right? Like, or you have a son that's not serving a mission. There's a lot of people that are sitting in the congregation. This happened to me with a dear friend here in town whose son came home early from a mission and she was very cautious about who she told mm-hmm. as to the legitimate reason why. And fortunately, like it happened when COVID was pretty at it, pretty much at its peak. And so they kind of were able to use that as, you know, COVID mm-hmm. got too much. He was in an unsafe area, you know, it was right. Um, even though a lot of people still were out serving missions during COVID. But it just like I my heart broke for her. And I am thinking about, you know, the perspective of your mother as me as a mother, like how it must have been. And I can't speak to her experience, but I know that for a lot of women that have. Are in Mormonism and have sons because mostly sons are required within Mormonism to go on missions right Mm -hmm. because that's one of the boxes you check to be a worthy priesthood holder and worthy of being married to you know someone for time and all eternity and it's you know did they serve a full-time mission if they didn't serve a mission you know what's wrong with them and I just feel like the stigma that comes from not serving a mission must have added a different layer for you as well like Mm -hmm. you know looking at it from um the lens of, you know, how is this going to affect my family that are still very much in, in um Exactly.
1: No, you're right cuz I I'm the only one in my immediate family that did not go on a mission. So yeah. all my siblings, my parents, um you know, most of my cousins went. Um very missionary minded family. I yeah. always wanted to go. That was always the plan. You know, yeah. and looking back on it, there was a time where I was seen as the gold. I think a golden boy, maybe not the golden yeah. boy, but a golden boy in the yeah. family and in the area. And so I think it was expected. And yeah, for sure. Um so I think it really surprised people. And that's when tongues started wagging what's yeah, going for on. sure. And for me, I just isolated and hid from it all. And yeah. like I'm just gonna do my own thing now. But it was still going on, until so yeah. I think maybe people finally found someone else to do that about. <laughs> yeah,
0: but, for sure, um, yeah.
1: Yeah, so there, there was a big thing, too. I was lucky because I didn't get as much from my family as I was expecting about that. Yeah. But what did happen was already enough, um, yeah. and at that point was more just, like, separation and people were just saying it with me, not around, yeah. so it was very hard.
0: Thank you so much for listening today and allowing us to be a part of your day. If you would like more information on Leaving in Color or to be a guest on our show, you can find us on Instagram at leavingincolor.pod or email us at leavingincolorpod at gmail.com. If this episode resonated with you in any way or made you think of a loved one or a friend, please tell them about it. Your support generates more abundance collectively. So please subscribe to leaving in color, wherever you listen to podcasts, like all beautifully crafted pieces. This podcast was co-created by the most talented humans. Our music is by the melodic master Tucker Winters. Our lovely cover art is by the multifaceted Jen of all trades. Jen Cagle Gilmore. Leaving in Color is masterfully produced in conjunction with Particulate Media. K.O. Myers, Executive Producer. And I am Christina Elmer. See you next time.